Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy... You have to understand human nature. How's it going there? It's uh, David here. Welcome to the David McWilliams podcast, the podcast that every week, and this has been a strange week, tries to make sense of the economy, take a little bit of the jargon out of economics and make it a little bit more relevant to all our lives. Now, this week we're going to focus on, and we hadn't really intended this a couple of weeks ago, but it has become so huge, we're going to focus on, again, the UK, Brexit, what is happening across the water in our biggest trading partner. No, sorry. This week, we're going to focus, this week we're going to focus on Brexit, but we're going to take a different angle. We're going to look at what the UK politically is going to look like over the course of the next few weeks. We're going to try and understand why the United Kingdom seems to be highly fragile as a political entity, much more fragile than we ever thought. And thirdly, what we're going to look at is the end of the backstop. And by that, I mean the backstop is over. Now that the DUP have no longer got the power, the notion that the UK is going to get its knickers in a twist over Northern Ireland is all over. And what are the implications of that for Northern Ireland, for Ireland, and for people in this neck of the woods? Before we begin, I want to just mention that this episode is brought to you thanks to our Patreon supporters. And to help support the content, and perhaps more importantly, to unlock exclusive comment and scenes and footage and episodes, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Now, as always, I'm joined by John Davis. How are you, Head? What is the story? Oh, very good. Another crazy week of work and parenting and kids back to school and all that that brings, as you well know. Well, how is the mental Davis house with five women and you? Yeah, and we got a new puppy as well. So there's actually... Uh, my wife, four girls, and two female dogs. So I feel a little outnumbered. But it's all good. <laughs> I just... But anyway, let us rock and roll, John. I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'm going to Dubai. Have you ever been to Dubai? No, I've never been to Dubai. I'm going to Dubai in the morning to give a speech, and it's the funniest, weirdest place, right? It's like a vision of 
the future. If you want to see a dystopian vision of what the world could look like in 2050, it is Dubai. You've got about 5% of the population of these Arabs with rakes of cash, yeah. right? kind of ridiculous amounts of money. Then you have a white middle class, managerial class of expats. And then you have this massive, massive underclass of Indian, Bangladeshi and Pakistani workers. And it's on the one hand, really terrifying, if you want to think of it sociologically and politically. But on the other hand, the way inequality is going in the world, places like Dubai may well be the cities of the future. So I'm going to come back next week and want to talk about this. I'll be interested to hear that because it, it, Dubai is one of those places that holds no grow for me at all. But what I do know, and I know a lot of people who go over there to shop and they have this uh, incredible, so I believe, shopping centres like a Dundrum on, on steroids where there's 14 <laughs> kilometres of shop front. Yeah, like, if I were you, why would you want to go there? As a general rule, as a human being, mate, I wouldn't hang around with people who go to Dubai <laughs> to shop. So let's kick on. The eyes to the right, 328. The nose to the left, 301. Yeah. Not a good start, Morris. The Prime Minister has lost his majority with the Honourable Member for Bracknell joining the Liberal Democrats. Last Friday, Chancellor Merkel of Germany observed somewhat acerbically that nine days into the 30 days that the Prime Minister had requested, she hadn't yet seen any proposals from the United Kingdom. He's desperate, absolutely desperate, to avoid scrutiny. Let the people decide on what he is doing to this country's negotiating position by having a general election on October the 15th. I spoke to President Trump this morning, your friend. He said, you tell my friend, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, that we're ready to go to work on that free trade agreement just as soon as you're ready. There's only one chlorinated chicken that I can see in this house, and he's on that bench. Can you make a promise today to the British public that you will not go back to Brussels and ask for another delay to Brexit? Yes, I'd rather be dead in a ditch. It's, as you just said earlier, it's a crazy, another crazy week in Brexit town. Is Boris Johnson on the ropes? Like, what's going on? Okay, well, I think at its most succinct, John, British people are going to face an election. And that election is going to come in a couple of weeks or a few more weeks, but it's pretty imminent. And the choice the Brits have is the following. Who do they want to run them in a recession, a communist or a charlatan. That's their choice. Yeah. Britain is going into a recession. They have either, they're going to vote for a constellation that produces Johnson as the leader, but Johnson as not a one-nation Tory of the old school, but of a Brexiteer Tory, very nationalistic, very Anglo-centric. That's his agenda, or Britain is going to get Corbyn as the leader again of a potentially strange coalition possibly, but Corbyn's agenda is an extreme left-wing agenda. So their choice is, who do we want in the recession? A communist or a charlatan? And if you think about it in geographical terms, is do we want to be a little Venezuela under Corbyn or do we want to be a little Vietnam under 
which is low tax and trying to attract in investment under someone like is there, Johnson. It, but hang on a second. Is there a third way? Okay, well, that's a, th- now you've hit on something really interesting. Let's go back 20 years. 20 years ago, Tony Blair won the first of three elections. Tony Blair won three elections with majorities of over 102 cases mm-hmm. and under 100 in the third case, but this was after the Iraq war, but he won it from the centre. Yeah. This is really interesting. He won it from the slightly left of centre. So for years and years and years in England, the centre, which was on the left, the social democratic centre, yeah. the social democratic left, almost like the German left, and the one nation Tory right, almost like the de Gaulle right in France, was the dominant political place to do business. Yeah. Now the UK have a choice between the extreme right and the extreme left. The centre has disappeared. There is no unifying person who is charismatic enough in the amount of time we have between now and the election to actually galvanise those yeah. forces. So the centre ground in the United Kingdom, even though it's there, has no leader. So consequently, what you're seeing is Boris is going to go off, Johnson, and he's creating an English nationalist party out of what was a British one-nation Tory party. Now, that has huge implications for the election because it means, John, he has abandoned the metropolitan liberals who used to vote Tory. Yeah. That's all the people around South London, all the people around the shires, all the people in urban England who were liberal, who were metropolitan, but who actually voted with their pocket because they believed the Tories were better for them. Okay. He's abandoned them with his Brexit approach. But they were all the Londoners who, who voted to remain anyway. Exactly. So they would probably go to the Liberal Democrats, okay? At least that's the Liberal Democrat pitch. Yeah. So where Johnson needs to fight is he needs to fight a rearguard action against the Brexit party. Now, the Brexit party are most strong in the north of England and in the middle of England. Yeah. And this is interesting because the Tory party used to say If you're an aspirational English person, if you're on the way up, if you believe that you're getting better and your lot is getting better, vote for us. We look after you with tax cuts and lower public spending. That was the Thatcherite magic formula for the aspirant English classes. Johnson has rejected those people because those upwardly mobile English people are liberal and they're quite metropolitan and they're likely to live in cities. What Johnson is doing with Brexit, he's turning it into a nationalist party, so he's actually going for old working-class votes who are much more English nationalists. This means, John, this is interesting, that the Tories can no longer be the party of small government because people who voted for Brexit want big government. They want to be protected from the outside. They can no longer be the party of metropolitan liberalism because the Brexiteers are not. So Johnson is profoundly changing what it means to be a Tory in the UK. Let's look at Labour. Sorry, just before you go on there then, who's advising Boris in this? Ah, This this, is interesting. Because this wasn't where he came from. No, I mean, in actual fact, Boris Johnson is not, he sounds like a tough. Yeah. But Boris Johnson is not an old English upper class person. Boris Johnson is from an incredibly bohemian family. Yeah. Not particularly rich in English upper class terms. His dad famously voted to remain. 
His dad was to remain. His grandfather was the advisor to the last sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Boris Johnson is a quarter Turkish. He's yeah. a quarter Muslim. Yeah, okay, yeah. People don't seem to get this. Right? He's from quite... He was born in the United States himself. His mum's American, as far as I know. He's from a quite bohemian, metropolitan, liberal stock. But he finds himself, and this is interesting, maybe because of his advisor or maybe because of his ambition, as the leader of what I would call the, the Longshanks. You know the Longshanks in history? Yeah, yeah. The English yeomanry, of which he's not really part of. So that's his background. I'll talk to you about the advisor in a minute. Yeah. Labour, under any other leader, would be home and dry. Absolutely. Home and dry. But Corbyn scares the hell out of Middle England because Corbyn really has a, it seems to me, a, a student politic grasp of international politics and economics. And it's, it's real old school. It's class war. Yeah. Right? So that scares people. That should give the chance for the Liberal Democrats to come through the middle, but they are not led by somebody charismatic. So what's likely to happen is Johnson will lose in metropolitan areas, will gain in old Labour areas, okay, but will lose to the Brexit party in proper extreme English nationalist areas. Mm. The Liberal Democrats will pick up people in the west of, of England and in some of the metropolitan areas. Yeah. The main winner is going to be the Scottish Nationalist Party. They are definitely going to run riot up in Scotland because the Tories are now gone. Yeah. They will not get any seats. So what you're going to find, I'd say, is some sort of crazy melange where nobody emerges as the main person. But your question was, why is Johnson going this way? Who's advising him? Yeah. This is interesting. There is a geezer called Dominic Cummins. Yeah, I keep, his name keeps coming up. Who, who is he? What, okay. What's his game? His game, now this is Where'd interesting. Where did he come from? I never heard of him before. Dominic Cummins spent a lot of time in Russia. He's a Russia file. His twin obsessions, apparently, are Dostoevsky, the <laughs> Russian novelists, right. which we can talk about. Yeah. No, no, and that's not. Bismarck. Well, the Dostoevsky thing is interesting. We're yeah. talking about that. And Bismarck, the creator, the unifier of Germany, right? Yeah. Cummings was the man who was the most influential person behind the Leave campaign. He's never been a member of the Conservative Party. He doesn't care about the Conservative Party. He is happy for all the old school Ken Clarks and these guys to be kicked out of the Conservative yeah. Party. He is one of these extraordinarily driven political operators who really believes in this idea that you have to destroy in order to reset, in order to build again. And this is a very dangerous person in politics. Is he the Steve Bannon of UK politics? He looks exactly like Bannon. And that's a really, really good comparison. Mm. Bannon is a very good comparison. And don't forget what happened to Bannon. He was dropped by Trump. But he went so, off on a different agenda. No, but the point is that all these... So Johnson is still the leader of a political party. Cummings is the leader of an idea. And the idea is Britain breaking away from the EU at all costs, no matter what damage it does to the British body politic. The reason I say he was into Dostoevsky and he was into Bismarck is that the Dostoevsky thing is interesting. Dostoevsky, obviously a Russian novelist, yeah. kind of philosopher in, in, in terms of what he brought to the novel. 
but writing at a time when Russia in the late 19th century, mid to late 19th century, is going through these massive convulsions where the Romanov dynasty is beginning to lose power. And the idea was, what is Russia? And Dostoevsky's big idea, along with many great Russians, such as Pushkin, I think was Slavism, that we are first and foremost a Slavic country, an Orthodox country, and we shouldn't be genuflecting consistently to the West. Now, the mirror image of that with Cummins is Britain is an island nation, a proud nation. We shouldn't be genuflecting to the EU. Okay, but let me ask you two questions then. One, where did he come from? Has he has he always been working in the kind of civil service in, no, uh, he, as a strategist in some sort of way? Well, you know, the funniest thing is, you know the way the Brexiteers go on about the unelected Brussels bureaucrat? Yeah. Cummins is the exact unelected UK bureaucrat. <laughs> he was a PR guy. Of. He was a Sven Galli. He's been a backroom guy but he has been a committed, committed, ideological... I told him last week, he's a Brexit jihadi. He's another jihadi. And interestingly, he's been really poor at understanding British politics. Well, I was going to ask you, that was my second question. Did he completely misjudge that since Barr started with, with a majority, albeit of one, and then now ended up with a, a minority of... Of 40-odd. 40-odd, yeah, whatever it so is. So yeah. this is the most... Again, this is what politics is all about. Nuance, ambiguity, making coalitions, listening to the other side, understanding what the other side wants. And the big number in politics is your majority. Mm. If you have a majority of 100 seats, you can do whatever the hell you like. If you have a majority of one, you can't be radical because you need every single vote. And of course, someone like Cummings, who's never been elected, doesn't understand this. Yeah, that was Theresa May's problem. Theresa May was much maligned. The reason she was much maligned is that she had a majority of one. Yeah. Once you have a majority of one, you can't do anything. You're totally boxed in. So Johnson needs an election. He needs to win the election. And the only way he can win it, he believes now, is going for the hard Brexit approach. If he does that, he has five years to deal with the Brexit chaos in the first three or four months and then go through with an agenda. So either he's going to be a five-year prime minister or a five-week prime minister or a 10-week prime minister. So he's either going to be this Churchillian character he regards himself as or he's going to be the prime minister who presided over the shortest term ever. And at the back is this guy coming. And what's driving them is this crazy overconfidence that I talked about a few weeks ago. Yeah. That overconfidence in psychology, in behavioral economics, is the single most destructive bias that we have. Because it's the one that leads us into most problems. So Cummings because he's an ideologue, is not a politician. And now it's very clear that Johnson is not a politician. He's a gambler. Yeah. He takes the most risky avenue to try and achieve his objectives. And the problem with the gambler, as we all know, is if the gamble comes off, you're a genius. But if the gamble doesn't, you're bankrupt. So it needs no latitude for events. And the most interesting 
aspect about politics is we know that events change the world. I think it was Macmillan, the British politician, was just asked, how, how do you describe politics? And he said, events, dear boy, events. <laughs> now, what actually he was referring to is the event was the Suez disaster in 1956, yeah. which propelled him to his prime ministership over Anthony Eden. That was the event. And ironically, it was 1963, the Profumo affair, oh, yeah. which was an affair between John Profumo, the defence secretary, and a woman called Christine Keeler, another woman called yeah. Mandy Rice Davis. It's a great film. Great film. And that was the event that destroyed... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Macmillan's right. premiership. So he was very well aware. But the idea is that uncertainty dictates politics because the events come out of nowhere and you have to be prepared for them. And I'm, what's interesting, John, here for me is how unprepared the United Kingdom institutional system is to deal with events and uncertainty. So, so the next big event in the course of Brexit is this general election. Will, regardless of who wins, will we be any more certain of what's going to happen? Well, you know, interestingly, uncertainty. Let's talk about uncertainty okay. for a second. So uncertainty is actually what drives the human condition in general. And politics is only an extension of the human condition. So uncertainty, life is all about almost trying to domesticate uncertainty. If you think about yeah. it, because that's what happens. I get up tomorrow morning. <clears throat> You get up tomorrow morning, you've no idea what's going to happen in the day. You're going to be hit with all these random events all the time. You've And humans spend their time trying to, what I would call, domesticate uncertainty. That's why we take out insurance policies. That's yeah. why we, yeah. you know, well, you and I are diff different because we don't have jobs, but most people have a job, <laughs> right? Because they actually want to take uncertainty out of their lives. This is why people worry about mortgage payments. This is why they worry about insurance. This is why they take out all sorts of premia to control uncertainty. Yeah. But you can't control uncertainty. So my view is always, 
What makes a system, and we're talking about the British system here, interesting is whether it can deal with uncertainty. And here we're going to talk a little bit about Nassim Taleb. Yeah. Great, great philosopher. Great You're a big writer. fan of Nassim Taleb. I'm a huge fan yeah. and, and I know him well and I've interviewed him at festivals. He comes to Kilconomics. In actual fact, the lovely thing about Taleb is uh, Shan and I met him in New York years ago and he's Lebanese and uh, I emailed him and he emailed me back and he said, uh, meet me in a restaurant. Lebanese restaurant. Mm -hmm. So we rock up to this restaurant and Talib's a big dude, right? He's a big dude and not a particularly good talker, not particularly sociable. So he sits down and he starts eating and he's talking about the food. Of course, I'm a total scoby when it comes to food, but (laughs) Shan was well capable of talking about Lebanese dishes, Syrian dishes, Turkish dishes, and suddenly we start to break them down. And at the end he said, okay, you want me to come to your festival? I said, yeah, like he's a big superstar. And he said to me, what's the festival about? And I said, it's trying to make economics a little bit more comprehensible with comedians. He said, do you have any sponsors? I said, no. Do you have any government money? I said, no. Do you have any university money behind you? I said, no. He said, cool, I'll do it. (laughs) Oh, really? So his whole idea was you have to have skin in the game. Yeah. You have to have your balls on the line that if the festival fails, you go bust. Right? This is his whole thing. Is he coming back this year? He is coming. Well, I'm trying to get him, actually. I've, if you're on Twitter, I've been having a Twitter ba- thing about him. And the way to do with Nassim is not to be reverential. Like other people, like Paul Krugman's coming. It's like, dear Professor Krugman, blah, blah. With Nassim on Twitter, I'm saying, hey, will you get your Lebanese arse over here? <laughs> and he responds, he says, it's a bit cold, but I'll have to ask the boss. So we're still going. <laughs> but he's a great, great philosopher. And he's a beautiful thinker. You've written The Black Swan, Anti-Fragile, Skin in the Game, all these great, yeah. great books. Fooled by Randomness is his first book. Amazing stuff. But he makes the point that all people and all institutions and all companies and all countries display three characteristics in the face of uncertainty. And uncertainty is a fact. So once you accept it as a fact, you can either be fragile which is when an event happens, he calls them, this is black swan idea. Yeah, yeah. And, and in a way, Brexit is a black swan. It's a low probability event that has massive impacts, right? So 10 years ago, Brexit was a very low probability event. When it happens, it's got a huge impact. Most of humans want to make the world into a world where we have high probability events so we can forecast yeah, them course, coming yeah. that have low impacts, right? Yeah. But he's saying sometimes you have these low probability events that have high impacts and that's where your system needs to be robust. And he said there's three states of systems and political systems are really important. He says there are fragile systems which when hit with an unexpected event collapse. Yeah. There are resilient systems which when hit don't collapse but just about survive. And then there are what he called anti-fragile systems, which when hit with an uncertain event that comes out of the blue, not only survive, but actually thrive. Wow. So give us an example of one of those. Well, evolution's a great... We are. Humans are a great example. Okay? okay. Life is a great example. The way in which evolution has evolved, the way in which we have evolved, we were hit by unexpected events, and not only do we survive, but yeah. humans thrive. Yeah, yeah. In lots of cases in unexpected events. So his idea is to look at systems that display these characters that make them anti-fragile. And what has interested me 
is the way in which the UK system is not only anti-fragile, which is the best way to be, not only resilient, which is the second best way to be, but absolutely fragile. Why is this? Because our assumption was the United Kingdom was the mother of parliaments, it was an old country, it was a deep culture, it was a winner in two world wars, etc., etc. It must be robust. Yeah. But it's not. It's hit with an unexpected event called Brexit and it's gone into a cataclysmic tailspin. When did this change? Now, what I think it comes from the fact that when I look at the UK system, the first past the post electoral system, first past the post is what we were talking about last week, winner takes all. Yeah. Right? So if you are slightly ahead of your neighbour, you get all the gains. So, for example, in the case of Ireland or most other countries that have a, a PR system, the political outcome reflects the preferences of people. And people have many preferences. So in Ireland, you have eight preferences, right? Yeah. You vote for number one, number two. And we think, oh, this is a pain in the arse and it takes ages and the tally man, yeah, yeah, yeah. But what it actually ends up with is a system where lots of people have a stake in it, however tenuous. So you give the 10th preference to some geezer, he or she gets elected in, yeah. you're okay, you're represented. In first past the post is, I'm a conservative. You're a liberal, you're a Labour Party member. I'm a conservative, we win, right? Yeah. You get don't get a look in. So for example, in a constituency in the UK, if there's 100,000 voters and the conservative guy gets 50,000 votes, and the Labour guy gets 48,000 votes, the Labour guy gets nothing. Yeah. And right? very often it's a case of, you know, you get through on a, on a vote of 35% or 37%. So, and that's exactly the yeah, thing. That's what Be- happened. Because of the, the first past yeah. the post, the people in government get in with 30, 35%. That never happens in Ireland, ever. Yeah. Because if you get 35%, you've got to have a coalition to get to 50 and a bit. And therefore, you've got to do deals, right? And that, ironically, makes the system much less fragile in the face of a shock. Now, the great way of looking at that is, look at there's two countries at the moment in Europe that are having a political crisis. One is Britain and one is Italy. Yes, okay. Historically, the Brits always dismissed the Italians. They say, oh my God, the Italians have had 25 governments since the Second World yeah, War. they always and... seem to be in, in chaos. So, And the British think that that means weak politics. But actually, does it? What is the country that's on the verge of breaking up? It's not Italy. It's Britain. So the Italian system, because of its very nature of compromise and living in the grey and doing background deals and representing small parties, and so the Communist Party gets 8% of the vote, but they get a, a seat, right? for example, mm-hmm. means the Italian system is actually much more resilient than the British system that looks much more robust from the outside because the government has a 100-seat majority. And, and the Italian system is a lot more representative as well. Much more representative. Yeah. So in the Talib worldview, where uncertainty is a fact, the British system, although it looks most robust, is actually most fragile. And that is what we're experiencing right now. So where is that going to lead us? I believe it's going to lead to the breakup of Britain. Okay. And this brings us to our friends 100 miles well, up the road. Absolutely, because the, the, 
the DUP power, as they were wielding over the last few months, is dissipated. The DUP are toast. The single most crucial message of the last week is the DUP are over. And in fact, when we look at history, John, I suspect that no unionist party will ever have been as tactically, strategically naive as the DUP in the last 18 or 24 months. And the reason is the following. The DUP's objective is to keep Northern Ireland in the union. The only way you will keep Northern Ireland in the union because of demographics, because there's more nationalists being born and more nationalists, right, is to make Northern Ireland attractive to middle-of-the-road nationalists. People who were born Catholic, who were born Irish, happen to live in Belfast or Derry or Tyrone or Armagh and say, you know what, staying within Northern Ireland will be less hassle than the potential hassle of a united Ireland and political problems with loyalism, etc. So what they're saying is, if Northern Ireland is prosperous, if I'm allowed to be an Irish citizen, if I can go to GAA matches, if I can have an Irish passport, maybe I will actually remain supporting the status quo. Mm. So the DUP needs to be attractive to middle ground nationalists if it is to survive because the demographics are simple. The demographics are the following. If you look at the last Northern Irish census, and if you take the people, the census goes, breaks everything down in in cohorts of five years. If you take the people over the age of 90, so those people are born in the 1930s. So this is the first generation born in Northern Ireland. The split between Protestant and Catholic, and I know it's not absolutely exact, but you can basically say Protestants are unionists and Catholics are nationalists, more or less, right? The split is 70-30. 70% Protestant, 30% nationalist, right? Or Catholic, right? That was people born in the 30s. You look at the people born in the last 10 years, and those figures have almost inverted. The Protestant population, which was 70, right, has now fallen to 35%. It's halved as a percentage of the total. The Catholic population has increased to the mid-40s. So, not it hasn't doubled, but it's almost getting there. Yeah. Now, those figures mean that the DUP has to make Northern Ireland attractive as an entity. By going for Brexit, and particularly the hard Brexit, and going against the backstop, what they've done is they've said that Northern Ireland cannot be what it should be, which is a special trading zone between Europe and Britain. Sort of, back to my idea, in the grey. Yeah. They went for the hard one. They went for you, the, you, the old school unionist. <clears throat> Screw your neighbours. We don't care about you. And they've lost. Because of the, well, p- partly because they, they're from a particular generation as well. Well, the interesting thing is that Peter Robinson, who was the last leader of the DUP to make significant compromises with the nationalists under the Good Friday Agreement, said, we, the DUP, can only survive if we are attractive to nationalists. Arlene Foster, possibly the worst tactician I've seen on this island, and there have been many, has alienated so much the middle of the road Catholics, 
that they will now entertain the idea, maybe, of moving towards a border pole when the time is right. So, interestingly, and here's the big takeaway, is that the DUP, who live and die by maintaining the union, by their actions getting into bed with the hard Brexiters and not doing a deal with their neighbours next door, their Catholic neighbours, have made the union in Northern Ireland more fragile than it's ever been. But hang on, though. Can can you blame the DUP? Because perhaps this was their only chance. They see the writing on the wall, but this is their only chance to kind of shore up the union. Fair point. And a little bit of disclosure here. My family in the North... Uh, voted for Brexit. Indeed. So I know the tribe we're talking about. So, you know, when they voted for Brexit, I can understand exactly. They felt that the only way they could shore up the union, cognizant of the demographic changes, of the political changes in the South, which are becoming much more acceptable mm. to Northerners, of the fact that the Southern economy is much richer and could probably afford to absorb the North we probably could. They're aware of all that and they're thinking, okay, is this the last throw of the dice for us? Yeah. To proclaim our Britishness, attach ourselves to the Union, etc. I can understand that. But we talked about Dominic Cummins as a political strategist. Mm-hmm. If you're an all or nothing, this is our last chance strategist, which Cummins is, and I suspect the DUP was. You don't understand that making that statement means that you can't come back from that if you lose, right? And what has happened to the DUP is having made accommodation, let's think, Ian Paisley sat down with Martin McGuinness. This is a big, big deal. Yeah. They accepted the ceasefire. Huge it's a big, deal. We, we don't understand it. It's a big deal for them. They accepted an amnesty. They accepted decommission. All these things that for them was a massive movement. So the DUP, everyone says, oh, the DUP didn't do this. They moved a lot under Paisley. They moved a lot under Robinson. It's in the last two or three years under the new administration and the new government and the the new leader that they haven't moved. And I've spoken to, in private, very senior DUP members. It's very clear to me that Arlene Foster will be gone in a matter of months. If the DUP... Do not vote in Jeffrey Donaldson, who is the only one who is slightly middle of the road, the only one who understands what's going on. They will end up in a lager mentality and physically in a lager, and they will end up being outplayed by nationalist Northern Ireland and by ourselves. But can I get back to one thing? Remember we talked about fragility. Yeah. One of the interesting things about politics is the more top-down you are, the less able you are to deal with uncertain events. This is why the British system was very top-down, okay? Economic and political systems that are bottom-up, like Switzerland, are much more able to deal with uncertain events. And what we should be thinking as Irish people is that if unification is coming in the next 20 years. We need to reimagine Ireland, to reconstruct Ireland, and to remake Ireland as a bottom 
up political entity, which means decentralizing power, giving power to local governments like the Swiss, almost direct democracy. And only that way will we facilitate Northern Unionists coming into this new arranged Ireland, or as Jimmy Nesbitt, the actor, said, a united island, which I thought was a nice expression. Mm. That's the end game. That's where we got to go. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Now, before we let you go, I want to give you a sneak preview of some premium content which you can access via Patreon. I know you said the peace process is a 1990s concept, but it's the one concept that the rest of the world has signed up to. What does that battleground in the centre-right mean from our perceptions of the two-state solution of Palestine at the West Bank? What does it mean for that existential question? It means that your perception is obsolete and largely irrelevant. It means that in the Middle East, in in Eastern Europe, Russia, the Middle East, South Asia, East Asia, South America, everywhere outside of the West, the peace process doesn't exist. The Palestinian issue is relegated way, way down the list. And there are other issues that have come to dominate that. Now, you know, we can discuss at great length why this came about and who's responsible and, and where it leads to and is there anything positive about it. You can talk about it from now to doomsday. It doesn't make any difference. If you enjoyed that, you can hear the full episode and much more by joining us on Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. See ya. What does it take to move the needle on the world's toughest problems? On Better Heroes, we've sourced the globe for passionate individuals and visionary companies who are all on a mission to solve humanity's most urgent challenges. Like, can AI make the world a better place? How can we change our consumption habits to better serve the environment? And what can we do to make our financial systems work for all? This series will convince you that humanity can save itself and our planet. Better Heroes is by EY and produced by Human Group Media. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.